AVXL episode 196 was recorded on February 12th, 2023. 4K Super Bowl in Dolby Vision, home theater tips, audiophile investments, flagship AVRs, and some AVR bargains. Some more thoughts on home theater from CES 23, Dolby Vision and Blu-ray, AVR zones versus streaming audio, and just a bit more. Do us a favor, email ask at avxl.com if you got a question for us. And thank you, seriously, thank you to everyone that supports us at patreon.com slash avxl. Testing, one, two, three. All right, I'm not blowing anything out. Ignorant weasels chewing on your soul. Ignorant weasels. Do you have speed? Yeah. Welcome to AVXL, your guide to the best in home video and audio gear, no matter what your budget is. I'm Patrick Norton. Hey, I am Robert Heron. Do you have ID, sir? Before I we do. let you on this podcast, I need to see your ID. I do. I kid. I, you, okay. So it's, what's it been? Three years since we've seen a Super Bowl in 4K. And today, 4K football. And if you have one particular service, 4K Super Bowl in Dolby Vision. Oh, yeah. Today is oh, yeah. the day of the Super Bowl. <laughs> and I am looking forward to the game a little later this afternoon. While 4K broadcasts have been available for a number of years now in terms of sports, right. uh, if you have the appropriate service and the appropriate subscription package for the channels you're receiving, today is, I believe, the very first time that you'll be able to actually watch the Super Bowl in 4K with Dolby Vision HDR right. if you have the appropriate hardware and the appropriate subscription from a particular vendor. In this case, it's going to be Comcast and anybody with one of their Xfinity X1 boxes would be able to have this set up to have that box then feed their compatible TV with Dolby Vision HDR sports programming, and in particular, the game itself. I think that is a terrific thing and kind of follows along with what they were doing for the World Cup with the soccer slash football event that happened a month or two ago, where in many markets around the world, actually, there were options for viewing the games or at least select games in 4k hdr ideally that's going to give you the wider color palette more saturated colors more lifelike colors compared to the regular 1080p sdr or just a regular 4k broadcast in addition of course if your tv is capable it hopefully provides some bright detail as well brighter detail than you would get otherwise Again, more lifelike and realistic and kind of looking through the window. I'm just delighted that Fox is actually doing this for their broadcast. I'm less delighted that it's only available for Comcast subscribers uh, as a household that uses YouTube TV. Well, at least I get it in 4K, but I don't get it in, in beautiful Dolby Vision HDR for compatible TVs. The good folks at Comcast are saying that this uh, edition of, or I should say Fox too, are saying that this conversion of making the content, which, guess what, isn't actually being recorded in 4K or delivered in 4K, it apparently is upscaled 1080p to 4K, and then HDR added to that. Still, uh, any delay or lag, you could say, in terms of that particular broadcast for the HDR feed will be milliseconds at most. Right. So there should be no appreciable difference. You're not going to lose the bets. <laughs> <laughs> This is true. I'm happy to see this happening. I, I really think it is probably going to be a visual improvement over the traditional, at least I recall right. Fox being one of the 720p broadcasters for sports. And 720p on a large format display is starting to get a little soft, I hate to say. Uh, yeah. You're creating a lot of virtual pixels, especially on the bigger 4K screens out there, let alone an 8K screen. So at least seeing... Hopefully, maybe a 1080p capture 
that is then right. converted by Fox up the 4K, uh, that should at least give you almost Blu-ray looking quality, quote unquote, uh, for this sports event. And then if you're fortunate enough to have the Comcast set up with the X1 box, you can uh, have your Dolby Vision HDR if you have a compatible TV and wish to partake. What's ironic is that there are a lot of college teams that have vastly better broadcast systems in place. <laughs> but, you know. Funny Fox, how that works. <laughs> Fox loves their 720. Oh, my goodness. One of the things uh, we've been talking about for years and that uh, you kind of gathered a whole collection of home theater tips. But one of my favorites, because I literally avoid using the apps built in anything other than a Roku equipped TV. Uh, I just avoid using non Roku TV built in apps like the plague, but old or new, you do not have to use the apps built into your TV period. Exactly. Uh, I don't, you know, I just basically immediately plug an Apple TV or Roku box into almost every TV. I run a projector. So there are no apps built into my particular TV. He says with finger quotes, this also goes back to when we talk about people wanting a dumb TV. Right. In essence, any of these so-called smart TVs, you can effectively ignore what is built into that TV and, right. and treat it as a dumb TV and then add your own flavor in terms of a streaming product, be it Apple TV or a Roku or a Fire TV stick, whatever you prefer. And when you do that, you will have an updated experience that isn't dependent on what's built into that TV. You do not need a smart TV to do any streaming whatsoever. You just simply need some kind of product to be able to log into your accounts and provide those streams for you. And it doesn't have to be what's built into the TV. It can be a separate stick or a puck that you plug in and go from there. Where I find the advantage of doing this is in particular with older TVs that may have outdated software. And by adding a new streaming product to it, you effectively are getting a brand new experience with that current TV that you already own. Also consider too, even if you have something like say a 1080p or a 720p TV, I would strongly recommend that you consider buying a 4K product in terms of a streaming product. It doesn't matter which one you want, be it an Apple TV right. or a Roku or whatever, uh, because they generally will equip that 4K product with a stronger or a faster CPU that will give you, I believe, a, a more consistent and smooth and snappy performance over its longevity, over the years of using it. And it, it goes a long way to having, hey, I've had this same streaming product for a number of years now, and I have right. no desire to upgrade it because it's still plenty powerful. It's like buying a laptop where if you buy the most, you know, if you buy the fastest one you can afford now, you won't be in two years going, gosh, I wish I got the faster processor. Right. I guess I'll just buy a whole new laptop. And to be honest with you, 4K chipsets are, have become relatively a commodity item at this point. So while right. there will always be specific models, I mean, Apple TVs aren't the cheapest products out there and neither are some <laughs> Roku's can get quite expensive in terms of at least the ultra versions. But uh, it's a terrific way to go in, in terms of just maintaining longevity of that product. General TV tips, say somebody's just unboxed a new TV. What are the first things you're going in there to, to fix? Go through your guided setup that occurs right when you first fire up a brand new TV. It will have you go through some basic options. Uh, the newer TVs provide an even more granular in terms of configuration and customization for your particular room environment. 
if you're dealing with a TV that might not have such features and you just want to optimize picture quality, the quickest way to do it is with the TV's picture presets. You typically go into the TV's picture menu and usually right near the top is going to be something that provides a menu of different presets, usually labeled things like standard, vivid, movie, cinema, filmmaker, natural, sports. Those particular presets are the quick and easy way to simply adjust the picture qualities to, to give you the most eye-pleasing picture quality for your particular room environment. I would suggest something like movie or cinema or filmmaker will look its best if you're in a dimly lit room or you want to see the most accurate color quality and you're willing to dim the lights in the room in order to ensure you're perceiving that. Likewise, uh, something right. like a standard or a natural preset is going to look better in a brightly lit room. Typically, those presets will add a little extra color, exaggerate the color, so to speak, uh, and add brightness and contrast effects just to make it punch a little bit better in a brightly lit room. And that can look great for those particular environments. But it may look a little harsh or unnatural if you're in a darker room environment where I said to use the movie or cinema or filmmaker modes. Also, be careful with Vivid. As tempting as that can be sometimes. <laughs> and maybe if it were outside in the sun, maybe sure. Vivid mode would have to be used. But it may also lock you out of some picture settings, like the sharpness setting in particular. Right. And no matter what preset you end up picking, it's almost always a good idea to reduce the sharpness. Uh, generally, with your movie or filmmaker modes, the sharpness isn't going to be boosted much. But in mo modes like standard or natural or, of course, vivid, they typically jack up the sharpness to the point where it adds edge artifacts to everything in the picture, and it looks bad compared to when you reduce that a little bit. Are they doing that just to, is that how they max out the brightness in that mode, just by jamming everything to the floor? It's just simply to create a more edgy picture, uh, something okay. that just has more defined edges, less fuzziness. It can also improve, at least subjectively, the look of video that may not be the native resolution. It may be like we were just talking about 720p being scaled up to 4K or 8K. Adding right. a little sharpness to, to lower resolution content can give it a, a better look or a more presentable look in certain cases. But be aware, too, that if there's any kind of, like, say, film grain or noise artifacts or any kind of artifact in the picture itself, compression artifacts, adding sharpness to that picture will also enhance those artifacts. And it can look like a, a snowy mess in certain scenarios. So in general, it's good to keep your sharpness at 10% or lower for no matter what preset you're using. And I usually disable any power saving features for maximum performance on most TVs just to make sure you're getting the brightest picture possible. However, I did come across the TV recently with a very effective room light sensor that was enabled by default uh, with the initial setup and it would automatically adjust the overall picture brightness for eye comfort depending on the room environment. So during the day, it made the picture brighter and automatically at night when the, there were fewer lights in the room, it would actually make the picture a little dimmer and uh, more eye-friendly and comfortable to watch. And I was pretty impressed with that. Uh, generally, I always disable those functions because they typically haven't worked that well, but I think they've come a <laughs> long way. And you're also seeing features that are taking advantage of that. Uh, I'm thinking specifically of Dolby Vision IQ, I believe it's called. And that's one of those systems that is using a room light sensor to do some automated adjustment 
uh, depending on how bright or dark it is within that room. And uh, of course, one last quick check for your picture quality is overscan or your picture size or your aspect ratio of the video being displayed on that screen. Set it to something called just scan or screen fit. Try not to leave it at just something labeled 16 by nine or auto if a screen fit option is available. It can be a little more confusing on Sony TVs, how they hide this setting in terms of what that control actually is. But uh, what you're trying to do is ensure that every video pixel of your source material is actually visible on the screen and not slightly stretched by like say 5% off the edges of the screen in order to, you know, uh, pretend we're dealing with analog sources from 40 years ago. Yeah. Or even to make the, the letterbox bars appear a little skinnier. Sometimes they'll do it for that reason as well. Right. Either way, you'll get the most detail out of all your sources if you have those pixels set to just scan or screen fit and not simply uh, some overscan mode. And those are some basic tips right there for you to just mm -hmm. go through any TV and make your experience all the better. And especially for the uh, upcoming public event of today's football game. <laughs> it could be important oh if, uh, if you've moved a TV or uh, need to repurpose it or you want to make it look good. For when the friends are over in a brightly lit room, uh, you know, I've given you some uh, tips and tricks to get that picture tips looking great. Tricks. Now I want to go find an antenna, actually, and plug it in and do a little comparison for the over-the-air digital broadcast that's free compared to what I'll get through a streaming source. So that's well, one I thing. I'd be curious to... I, you know, it's I'm funny, bummed. right? I'm I... bummed there's no 4K option yet for broadcast, at least widely available. Right. I'm just really curious. I want to see somebody do a side-by-side -side between the, the standard broadcast version and the Dolby Vision HDR version. I'm sure they'll be talking about it on social media as it rolls. I'd be very, very curious about that. Um, weird side trip. Something I, certainly I talk about and we talk about is there's some you know home theater audio products that are worth looking at used, uh, especially as, you know, we've dealt with incredible costs. Uh, you know, wood's gone up in price, copper's gone up in price, shipping's gone up in price. Although shipping is finally back down to where it was in, in 2019 and early 2020. Maybe some of the delivery times are, are brutal, but the actual cost for a container has gone back down considerably. But I was thinking about this because I was, I was looking at some speakers that were announced uh, at ISC. Um, which is uh, an AV trade show takes place in Barcelona. And uh, Lingdorf announced these Q100 speakers, which, you know, they're kind of a stylish speaker design. They're up on tripod legs. They're slick. Um, and I was kind of curious, and I know Lingdorf is one of the investors or one of the, the founders of Purify. And Purify is, is basically trying to eliminate uh basically create class d amplifiers and speaker drivers they just want to deliver world-class performance and scale it maybe not make it super affordable you know on the speaker side but certainly are trying to to deliver you know large volumes of fairly flawless drivers so i was thinking i'd like to see these q100 speakers you know they're out of my league right they're they're talking about ten thousand dollars per side for these powered speakers i'll just say ouch but nice. you know yeah you know but i would like to listen so to those as well <laughs> yeah because every so often we hear something like you know the magico has eighty thousand dollar speakers i'm like okay i i i get that yeah, way out of my league, but but it's a standard. You hear them. It's like it's like going to a piano store to hear, right? A, you know, 
a middle C or going to Guitar Center and asking the guy in the percussion section to just, you know, tap on a ride cymbal for you because it reminds you of what things sound like in real life or what we can achieve, uh, you know, with a relatively serious budget. So I ended up on a local dealer site, which has no mention of any Lingdorf products listed, much less these speakers, but they had some used Focal speakers. And there is nothing like seeing what basically is a $75,000 pair of speakers for sale half off. And, you know, I this part of the reason I mentioned this is because I was researching a question for this episode and I stumbled across a company that's, uh, they're tweaking their, or, or I guess upgrading old Oppo Blu-ray players and reselling them for like $4,500, which is great if you're okay. obsessed with Oppo Blu-ray players, but you can do, you can get better output, HDMI output for a fraction of the price that actually includes a warranty and feature sets that did not exist when, you know, uh, or, or features that maybe didn't exist on those Oppo players. Um, you know, and the older Blu-ray players, they're kind of like subwoofers. There are some great old subwoofers, but new ones that outperform the old ones for a fraction of the price are easy to get. So don't obsess over a vintage subwoofer. Um, Semi-related note, props to Cord Electronics. They actually tweeted out that they, quote, still provide support for all their discontinued products, and you can even download user documentation for them online. Uh, and they said that it's especially useful for secondhand owners. And I will say, given that, like, a lot of Cord Electronics products have, like, multiple colored buttons, and it's a completely analog interface in the sense that you have to figure out what the color and the button means, and you need a manual to do that, or you need to experiment a lot, uh, good for them. Uh, and, and good for them for acknowledging that there's a used market for their products. Um, you know, in, in, you know those $75,000 uh, Focal Utopia speakers, I spent an afternoon listening to those, uh, or a couple hours listening to a bunch of tracks on those several years ago at a friend's shop. <laughs> They're amazing, right? And right. $45,000? Total bargain if you were looking to spend $75,000 on speakers. They're lovely, right? Um, but it's also amazing how some things hold value over time. Uh, Macintosh amps are always incredibly expensive. Uh, and I'm also really thankful for the prices of, of, of paid-for-used gear on eBay and Craigslist. And here in the 314 where Craigslist barely exists, Facebook Marketplace. Um, you know, if you're looking to upgrade, if you're looking for opportunities, there's a lot of, you know nice speakers or other gear you can get that costs a fraction of the price probably wouldn't buy a you know a, a television used um but uh but you know some projectors might be worth the money a lot of speakers are probably worth the money some fairly you know recently produced subwoofers from you know shoe or svs or 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 some of the monoprice uh, monolith subwoofers are probably worth the money rsl speedwoofer uh i'm obviously subwoofer obsessed but you know if you're if you're if you're crunched because food is expensive and i think about that every time i go to costco um, and look at what I need to feed the teenager and the smaller child. Um, you know, think about doing refurbished or used or, you know, factory refurbished. Good point. Uh, so speaking of Macintosh, um, I want to talk about a couple fairly spendy AVRs that were announced in the last few weeks and one that is not so, uh, some options that are not so spendy. Uh, Macintosh announced the MHT 300 uh, blue 
display, not the big blue meters, but uh, Dolby Atmos, Dirac Live, Dolby Vision, HDR10+, HLG, uh, 8K, 60 hertz, and 4K, 120 hertz video support. Nice. And because it's Macintosh, their amp specs are just flat out brutal. And I, I say brutal in a, in, in a cheerful kind of happy way. 120 watts per channel with all seven channels driven and eight ohm speakers from 20 to 20 kilohertz at 0.03 percent thd uh, 150 watts into four ohm speakers all seven channels driven um so 7.2.4 support with uh, uh, you'll need external amplification for the atmos channels uh there's an fm tuner in it no analog inputs which i thought was fascinating uh, not even for a turntable no wi-fi no bluetooth but there is an ethernet jack you know it's a macintosh project it has character direct live room collection is included which is pretty slick uh it is a healthy eight thousand dollars you know if you're buying macintosh amps you know what you're getting into uh, it's going to be shipping in march um and you know compared to most uh avrs where they're like two channels driven at one kilohertz delivers this and that's the only spec they list <laughs> <laughs> you know or or maybe they're a little uh, elusive, but Denon uh, also had a high-end uh, AVR announcement, the AVR-A1H. This is their new flagship. It's kind of a celebration of an anniversary. 70 pounds, $6,500, 15 channels of amplification, quotes our most powerful transformer, carefully selected parts. Uh, one would hope, right, that they would actually have enough of a transformer, and they actually did take care of selecting parts for all of their AVRs, but they were especially emphatic about uh, this one it's a flagship right designed and manufactured by denon in japan 9.4.6 speakers max which is uh, a lot of channels nice. 150 watts per channels uh at eight ohms 20 to 20 kilohertz thd 0.05 percent two channels driven which is is not a bad spec uh but is not seven channels driven uh 8k support I particularly like that they call out that it has cast iron feet, which I was like, that is ridiculous. Then I looked at them and I'm like, you know, compared to the plastic feet on most AVRs, if you're going to spend eight grand, I'm down with the cast iron Japanese feet. Um, it I is like a it. big step up price wise from the AVR X8500HA, which is $4,600. Um, which is a 13.2 channel 8K AVR. Both of them uh, offer Odyssey Multi-EQ XT32. And it's interesting, right? Because the AVR A1H is going to get direct live as an upgrade option, or, or the firmware update is going to be available in March. Denon's AVC X4800X and X3800XH will also, that firmware is also supposed to be available in March for those. Um, Denon's sister company, by the way, Marantz, is going to be getting a direct upgrade for the Marantz AV10, the Cinema 40, and the Marantz Cinema 50. And I mention that because there are a lot of people that are have decided that Dirac is giving you a better in-room tuning experience than uh, Odyssey is doing, even with the multi-EQ XT32, the high-end stuff. It's an interesting stuff. Dirac's an interesting company. They've done a lot of standalone boxes. And uh, if you're curious, email ask at AVXL, and we'll talk about what's going on in that corner of the AV universe, the sophisticated room tuning software. For everybody else who's not looking for a flagship, uh, there are 25% discounts on Denon's, uh, a bunch of Denon AVRs, like the X4700H, the 3700H, the 2700H, and uh, a few more. Uh, and you can find those at Denon.com. So... Uh, and order them directly from Denon.com. Uh, check there. Check your favorite place to buy AVRs. Uh, now they also have a ton of refurbished gear for sale at Denon.com, which is worth looking into given how hard it was to find a quality AVR during much of the pandemic. 
By the way, if you're looking for all the channels, Emotiva's BaseX MR1 Cinema Receiver is also shipping. Uh, $2,000 gets you 4K UHD support, 13.2 channels of Dolby Atmos or DTS-X. Uh, and they have preamp outputs for all of those. They have 11 channels of amplification on board. A very large toroidal transformer. Yes, I am being humorous since apparently it is large transformer day here on AVXL. And uh, interesting choice. They have, uh, they're doing, uh, Emotiva has built their own in-house room tuning, uh, the EmoQ automatic room correction system, which I have not heard uh, from anyone who has used that yet, but I'm very curious. Uh, if you want to nerd out, they're using Class H amps in that MR1, and I was giggling because they have power output per channel, one channel driven, 160 watts RMS per channel at 8 ohms, uh, 290 watts RMS per channel at 4 ohms, or a single channel at 4 ohms, 0.1 THD, which is a bit higher uh, than some of the other products we've talking about, but should still be fairly inaudible. Um, they also have specs for two channels driven, five channels driven, and 11 channels driven. And by the time you get to all 11 channels being driven, you've got 100 watts RMS per channel at 8 ohm and 130 watts RMS per channel at 4 ohm, again, at that 0.1% THD. Um, you know, the more channels you drive, generally the less output you have per channel. You probably don't need 260 watts per channel uh, on all channels, uh, all 11 channels, but uh, it's always nice to be able to hit that. Um, I appreciate the extra channels in a single unit just for the simplicity. Yeah. I mean, if, if yeah. you know you're driving many, many speakers in a room, then you know probably you're going to yeah. need additional amplifiers, discrete amplifiers for maybe right. certain portions of that. But man, for most setups, if you can do it all with a single box, Granted, single point it's of failure nice. or whatever, but these typically, if they're set up properly, are going to give you years of fun. Yeah. <laughs> Audible yeah. fun. Yeah, well, I mean, it was funny, like, uh, you know, Golden Ear speakers, part of the reason I've got I've got five channels, three in the front, two in the back, and then four, uh, four Atmos channels, is because they were like, yeah, you don't really, we, we felt the two rear Atmos channels made the you know two additional rear speaker channels unnecessary uh and you know i've got nine my amplifier has nine channels of amplification so that also meant i didn't need to find two more channels of amplification to match uh, my avr which exactly. made my life a lot simpler i like that um so sennheiser got purchased a while back and uh uh or the the headphone division got purchased a while back and we we talked about that but uh something just came out is the sennheiser hd 660 s2 and i thought it was an interesting line on there quote every high-end headphone has its own unique personality what if you could own only one or what if you could only own one but it, it was it was an interesting kind of moment right uh, that line from sennheiser uh, on the launch page for the HD 660 S2. And mostly what's interesting is, is they're bringing more bass to this. This is one of their classic oval shaped, open backed 600 series headphones. Um, they say, you know, they say sub bass, uh, you know, they're, they're bringing more sub bass to their open back HD 660 S. Um, so when you're talking about sub bass and bass, like bass is 60 to 250 Hertz, sub bass is 20 to 60 Hertz. Um, you know, 
there's a more modest boost, pretty much up to 600 hertz, because they actually put a frequency chart up comparing the HD660S2 to the HD660S. I want to give a shout out to that. I thought it was fantastic. They also note that it was done on a BNK hat, or basically head emulator or torso simulator uh, with an audio precision ATS2. Um, it also looks like between the 660S and the 660S2, they've cleaned up a lot of the crazy dips that were taking place between 5 kilohertz and 20 kilohertz, which is going to make, a, I think, a better audio experience. Nice. One, I'd like to see charts like this from more of Sennheiser's headphone offerings. Two, I'd like to see them from more other manufacturers' offerings and noting you know, what these measurements were taken on, But because you, you can't actually compare uh, the different ear or pinna simulators and head simulators. Um, Sean Olive over at, uh, over at Harmony actually figured out a formula to compare the frequencies by the basically to, to a formula that allows you to compare the frequency charts generated by uh, different heads or ears uh, but Sennheiser is no longer allowing him to share that data at the Audio Engineering Society which is kind of a bummer but props to to, to Mr. Olive Dr. Olive for, for making sure that people understand that, that you cannot act you will not get the same results on different measurement tools um, 300 ohm which means you'll probably definitely need a headphone app uh, curious to hear them possibly at can jam um sennheiser's open back headphones are legendary i pretty much given up on them several years ago because uh they just did not have much they dropped off at 100 hertz or a little above 100 hertz and they dropped off considerably and uh i like to be able to hear the last note on the piano or the open e on a bass much less uh, uh lower stuff in electronic music uh if you're curious about them 600 bucks pre-orders uh at sennheiser-hearing.com and Sennheiser, if you by chance happen to stumble across the podcast, love to see the measurements. Please do more. Just wanted to say that. Oh, yeah. Oh, you had some CES follow-ups, especially on OLED PC monitors. Yes, OLED PC monitors. Those highly desirable, super contrasted computer monitors that a lot of people really want, including myself. I'd like to make that my so next pretty. monitor choice. A quick shout out to the folks over at DisplayNinja.com for putting putting together a terrific list of all OLED monitors that are known, including what's currently actually available and what's upcoming in addition to prices and some specs as well. It's a terrific list if you just want to get your head wrapped around really quick about uh, what your options are. Uh, I'll start off real quick with mentioning Alienware's 34-inch QD OLED that came out, I believe, last year. That set expectations pretty damn high for OLED gaming monitors, and they also offer it in a G-Sync and a FreeSync flavor, which is kind of rare among most of the offerings out there. You usually get uh, partial compatibility of one or the other, and then full compatibility of the opposing flavor of that. Anyway, uh, at CES, Samsung showed off their new OLED G8 and G9 panels. Uh, that OLED G9, I believe it's 49 inches, beautiful. It was just mm. using that updated technology with the QD OLED and the brand new blue emitter. I found that to be one of the most delectable ultra widescreen monitors out there. LG also had their brand new Ultra Gear OLED monitors in the 27 inch 1440p flavor, as well as the 45 inch ultra wide display. Both of those are currently being listed by many retailers as coming soon, so I would expect those to start popping up in the next, hopefully, few weeks. Uh, Mini nice. LED is the other big trend at the show. 
This used to be regulated to some of the ultra-premium LCD televisions out there. Now it seems to be the norm in terms of providing a greater degree of control for contrast performance on an LCD screen. In particular, being able to do local dimming at finer and finer granularities, you could think of uh, that way. One example being for 2023 would be Hisense's uh, H6, H7, and H8 series in addition to the 8K UX series. All of them are using mini LEDs. You could think of it as uh, increasing numbers across that whole series. Uh, in in most cases, at least doubling whatever came in 2022 in terms of the number of LEDs being used to backlit these screens. LCD TVs will continue to deliver that best value for big screen TVs. And that mini LED is really just bringing improved backlight control, giving you better, hopefully better contrast performance and brightness uh, at even better values. Now, for the micro-LED TVs that were on display at the show, in particular, I'm thinking of the Samsung demonstration where they had models ranging from 50 inches to 140 inches. This is actually direct-lit, true LED screens in terms of red, blue, green LEDs being used as the sub-pixels for each pixel. While these are very expensive, I was pleasantly surprised to see the new 110-inch version of Samsung's micro-LED display technology actually being unboxed and installed at a facility, and I will post a link to that YouTube video to check out. If you are so inclined, I don't believe they actually talk about price within this video. Consider it's going to be something like a, a solid six figures. <laughs> Still, it, it, of all the displays I saw at CES, something that truly had the color saturation of that, that color purity of true red, blue, green LED, in addition to mm -hmm. brightness levels uh, pushing 5,000 nits and the ability to turn completely black. When you, you turn off an LED, there is no light. So you get like the best of OLED in terms of contrast, but then you get the best in brightness in terms of, well, I don't know of a current TV that can do 5,000 nits, but... This was uh, as close to outdoor signage as you're going to get, but in a very controllable way, high performance. Uh, it would be great for any scenario. Granted, ultra premium. I said I would talk some more in depth about what's going on with soundbars at a CES because, quite frankly, everybody seems to be offering soundbars. If you have any relationship to televisions, uh, in particular, or consumer electronics in general. Um, and I'm just going to not say anything about them until I can actually hear some of them. I'm sure that they will all be better than the speakers in your TV, but in chats with various audio nerds, especially ones that do um, objective testing with instruments, uh, we're hearing kind of all sorts of things. Processing that's all over the map, uh, specs that overpromise, uh, rather than under-deliver uh, in terms of the frequency range or the volume they're hitting. Um, there's some interesting things, I think, to discuss about how Atmos height does or does not work, depending on how it's implemented. I also think I could probably write a master's thesis on this point, trying to explain all the different implementation of Atmos uh, on everything from laptops to televisions to sound bars to everything else, because I, I think it's kind of become a universal tool for things that make audio sound bigger from Dolby, and I'm, I'm hoping to, to get some clarity from them on that. Um, cheap subwoofers, which can be uh, either a, or I should say, you know, included subwoofers, soundbars, soundbars that include subwoofers, which may deliver a quality experience that gets your your bass down to 50 hertz in a, in a nice way, or a chuffing mess that's going to distract you every time anything explodes, uh, or you're hearing anything with a bass line on uh, YouTube. <laughs> You know, I was just a good um, sub. 
A good subwoofer, though, is something to be oh, so appreciated. It can add so yes. much to an otherwise decent soundbar in the sense that it can do the mids and the highs really well. But to, right. get, to get it down into like the, the 30s even in terms of your hertz, uh, it's nice to have that addition yes. if it works properly, of course. Yes, but when they don't work properly, they're really annoying. You know, bloaty, boomy bass chuffing <laughs> sounds from the from the port that's probably a terrible sound and i promise to never make it again on the podcast uh, this reminds uh, me of one thing though <laughs> i did see at the show in the high sense booth is they had a product called the p1 it, oh, i want to say it was available only in 85 inches it was was it 8k i don't remember it had the incredible mini backlight system, mini LED backlighting system. So it, it could do the nits. I believe it was 2,500 nits of peak brightness. Right. Uh, this but, isn't the, the PX one, the, the short throw projector. No, this is a different the product. P1. And in particular, what it was, was a sound. Basically, they implemented a full sound system within the TV itself. And I don't know how desirable it might be to have all that built in, but it was the one demonstration I was in where I was really wishing I wasn't on a show floor. Uh, right. I, I, it would have been nice to better appreciate that in a quiet environment. But it, for what it was and what it was doing for this demonstration, it definitely was plenty loud and had clearly multiple drivers at work. And that's something I'm going to keep an eye on just to see if they actually make a product out of it or what that what that additional cost would be to have something right. that kind of crazy integrated directly into a display itself. Uh, you know, uh, maybe it'll never appear in the marketplace, but it was kind of interesting to see somebody actually thinking about that in terms of, hey, how the worlds. So when because Sony in particular has for a long time had the ability to make your screen vibrate and behave like a center channel. So this was way beyond that experience, as you're saying. Totally. And this was LCD technology as well. So this was also uh, the cabinet thickness was increased to increase uh, the room for the drivers that were used in this TV. And it was it was designed specifically to provide a multi-channel listening experience, uh, at least solid stereo for the limited ability I had to actually listen to this system. Right. Uh, the sonic screen, that's it exactly. And I, I was at least impressed with having something that, wow, okay, you definitely don't need a sound bar with this TV. It has some nice. chops to go with it. But again, I was in a less than ideal environment for pre And it's just <laughs> it an interesting product. Something that kind of stood out among the crowd, uh, in, at least in terms of that, that screen size with the brightness they were pushing and having a sound system like that built in. It, if you couldn't do a sound system with a TV, that might be right. one good option then for you where it's like, okay, we've got a big screen TV with a decent sound system built into it. So we don't need to have anything else connected or involved, so to speak. Anyway, there's there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, I'll put a link to that in the show notes for that Hisense TV, the P1 series Sonic Screen LCD. Nice. Yeah. <coughs> Sorry. In three, two. Damien emailed Ask at AVXL. Hi, are you planning on attending M Wave this year? And uh, uh, he says, I think it would be right up your alley. This would be my first time going. Keep up the great podcast, Damien. And I've never heard of uh, M-Wave before. It's the Midwest AV Experience. 
Uh, but it's in Kansas City, and that's where Arthur Bryant's is, amongst other fine barbecue places. So I'm definitely up for attending. Uh, and I'm kind of curious. Let us know about your fave shows. Um, you know, we know about Cedia. We know about Can Jam and CES. We know about Can Jam for headphones and Axpona, uh, which is uh, audio gear. And in, in many ways, for me, I think is has replaced the Colorado uh, Rocky Mountain Audio Fest, or I should say the Rocky Mountain Audio Fest that took place in Denver, Colorado. Um, Because Exponent used to be a lot of super high-end vendors or a lot of kind of goofy products to me, and now it has a lot of vendors who create gear that is affordable or that I can respect, Um, you know, and maybe fewer $10 million a foot uh, cable companies, which if that is your jam, by all means, go spend $10 million on cable. Uh, But if you know of some good shows, especially regional ones, let us know about it, and we'll share them with everyone so we can get more people out there listening and looking at cool stuff. Um. Tom emailed us again, ask at AVXL.com with some challenges. Uh, and he's trying to pick the right zone on an AVR when he's streaming over airplay. It's something I can relate to. He's deep in the Apple universe. He's got iPhones and iPads. He's got dead end receivers that work with airplay. Uh, each of them, he has each of those receivers though. He has serving more than one zone. If you've never played around with zones on an AVR, it's essentially, there's usually zone one is like the home theater room and zone two or zone three is speakers that are located in a different room. So you can take advantage of all the channels on your amplifier uh, to drive speakers in different places. So the challenge he's discovered is when he's streaming music, the receiver automatically sends the music to the main zone for audio output. And then if he wants to, to send that music to like zone two or zone three, he's got to open up Denon's Heos app. He's got to manually select the audio source for the other zone. And he says, I want to select any room I have speakers installed in from the AirPlay menu. And he notes that I could buy a dedicated receiver for each room, but this seems like overkill. It would be expensive. Switching to Sonos is out of the question as well. What other choices do I have? Appreciate your feedback, Tom. So, again, if you never play with zones on an AVR, zone 2 or zone 3 lets you power a pair of speakers in a different room or the same room if you're kind of crazy that way, uh, running the same music or different music. Uh, And in some cases, even when you're using your home theater, uh, it might actually steal a couple channels from your home theater surround sound to do it. So check this out before you get heavily invested in, in, in doing this. Um, you know, it depends on how your rig set up. For example, in some cases it might use, uh, Atmos height channels to create zone two or zone three. Um, man, you know, here's the challenge and probably the simplest way of doing this is since recycled recently, reducing, reusing and recycling is kind of my sub theme this episode. Um, use Denon receivers, uh, off of Craigslist or Facebook marketplace, uh, or eBay or, you know, check your favorite vendor. Um, those are probably a great deal because it's not too hard to find a decent, uh, even uh, HEOS-ready, AirPlay-ready tenant receiver for not much money used. Because again, once you get past a certain point, the market value on receivers just drops because they don't have the latest support, right? You don't care if it's 4K if you're using it as a stereo amplifier. Um, and I got into research mode. I'm like, man, there's no, it's, uh, I mean, look, the, the best summary of this comes from, uh, a poster named Dunners on avforums.com. And it, it's it's simple. AirPlay 2 does nothing for multi-zone playback, sadly. It will allow you to play to other products that aren't your AVR, um, but that's it. Um, 
you know, you could you could look around for inexpensive AirPlay or AirPlay 2 amps, but frankly, I think used AVRs are one of the great bargains in audio, and I don't think anybody has a way of selecting zones through your different devices connected to AirPlay. Maybe it's there in Rune, and I just haven't figured it out, but uh, if you've got a better idea for time to try, email ask at avxl.com. Um, you know, and it's just, you know, at some point you run into the limitations of how things are streamed. And I think, you know, in many cases, what the majority of people do is supported. And the farther you get from that, the less likely you are to find support for it, especially if there are a bunch of competing products out there, you know, because there are lots of different manufacturers of ABRs. Brent emailed ask at avxcel.com. In episode 195, we talked about a decent 4K Blu-ray player for around 150 bucks. What are your recommendations? I need one that supports Dolby Vision at 60 frames per second. I don't need anything fancier than that. I'm having trouble finding one that would give me that for less than $250 so far. I will keep digging. Thanks for all you do. Uh, and Brent also notes about the Xbox One's inability. Xbox. 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 I have trouble saying Xbox One if I'm thinking about it. In any case, he notes that Xbox One uh, doesn't do Dolby Vision for 4K discs. Neither does the, any of the PlayStations. Um, it is what it is. Um, True. You know, the fact that you want Dolby Vision makes this a really easy or really short list, Brent. There just aren't that many 4K UHD Blu-ray players that support Dolby Vision. None of the consoles do. Um, you know, I, and at this point, Rob and I are going to split a little bit because uh, two out of my last three Sony Blu-ray players disintegrated. The third one I gave away before it pissed me off. Um, the crew at the wire cutter have have run into a bunch of sony blu-ray players uh that have locked up and refused to play a disc sometimes they decide to play discs in the future sometimes they don't um but your pick at this point is what rob i would say it continues to be the ubp x700 i believe it's the x700m now is the latest one. Mine is three years old. And when I looked up that product, I paid about 180 at the time for it. The new M model currently on sale, it has a list price of 260 And then right. I see it currently listed in, in select retailers for a little hair under $200. And right. that's the one I would go with just because of that price point. It will literally play any disc you put into it, be it a DVD uh, many of the music format discs as well, in addition mm-hmm. to your 4K uh, ultra high def Blu-rays, and including Dolby Vision compatibility as well, and all in one box. And I, uh, I, I personally have had no problem with it, and I, I don't exactly treat my disc player very nicely. <laughs> I mean, in terms of its placement, it gets moved around a lot. It gets plugged in and, and unplugged. Uh, I, for the last few months, literally, I had it sitting on top of a subwoofer, which is, I, generally speaking, you should not do that uh, for any disc player, especially optical media. Uh, that jiggling can't help. <laughs> but it's, right. it's been cranking along just fine, and I haven't had any problems with it. And I would be prone to probably replace it with another one if something did go awry with it. But still, uh, I think for that price point and to have uh, just the broad compatibility of all the disc formats, including your HDR formats for your 4K Ultra HD Blu-rays, sure. uh, there you go. And it'll do 4K 60, as, as most Blu-ray players will, or at least the 4K Blu-ray players will. Uh, but still, uh, all things being equal, I was just dealing with a client recently who was upgrading to one of the new Panasonic players. 
and I know you're a big fan of those. I am fascinated by HDR Optimizer. They are excellent disc players. So you've got the Sony. I'm, I'm going to say flat out, you know, LG does a, a does technically a, uh, a well, it, it's not technically LG's UBK. 90 supports Dolby Vision. Uh, you can get it for around 200 bucks. It's half the price of Panasonic's UB820K, which I'll talk about in a second. Um, you know, that LG is fine for Dolby Vision TVs if you can remember to choose 24p or 60p manually, whatever disc you're watching. As far as I know, uh, you still have to do that manually in that, which is kind of a non starter. That's annoying. Say. Yeah. Yeah. Buy the Sony um, on that one. That is a feature with Panasonic players I do appreciate. They have disc controls and detection where you can actually have right. it spit out for, for DVDs in particular. Uh, if, it was, if, if the 24P signal is there, it will deliver it. And it had some of those other automatic features. Not automatic, but the ability to <laughs> fine-tune it with different display types, especially if you're dealing with projectors. That was the other strong suit I felt right. for, for the uh, Panasonic players. Yeah. So the 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 big one is right the the HDI optimizer. Yeah. Um, you know, where essentially it, it it turns down the brightness. You know, if you've got a disc that's mastered for 4000 nits or 10000 nits, it's going to dial things back so you don't lose a lot of brightness uh or lose a lot the of detail, detail I should say right. in the brighter sections. Um, you know, uh your TV probably clips them natively. Um, certainly my projector does, but HDR, uh, HDR optimizer, uh, is a bit more elegant, uh, our friend Chris Hinoda, in particular. Yeah. Yeah. Who used to work over at uh, Wirecutter, He said, we were able to see more details and bright highlights for the DP UB 420 than we could with other players, as well as more vivid colors that were washed out or were only white on other players. And that's a particular benefit. If you don't have a Dolby vision ready television or, or if the processing on your television, isn't the best. So one of our patrons, Thomas, Thomas S, he actually has the UBP X700, and he's wondering, actually, you specifically, Rob, would you consider upgrading from that Blu-ray player at this point? He's got a TCL 75-inch 6-series TV to watch his 4K Blu-ray discs. Um, at what point is it worth upgrading, you know, perhaps to that several-million-dollar oppo I mentioned earlier in the show? Ha-ha. <laughs> as long as... Thomas is having no compatibility issues, and I always check your player or have it automatically set to do firmware updates because sometimes it includes specifically, it usually is, for disk compatibility, either new, new keys or new, new encryption technologies that need to be updated uh, for a particular playback of certain disks. Uh, yeah. That's sometimes the case. But otherwise, if it works, I see no reason to go spend money on something where you're not going to really appreciate a difference. Uh, see, this is the question I would have then. Is the tone mapping, ideally with any of these disc players, it's effectively feeding the TV uh, code values. Uh, right. If it's, if it's, and then the TV just simply says, okay, for this HDR broadcast, here is my built-in tone mapping. If right. it didn't have any form of tone mapping for the HDR presentation in the case of, say, a projector or maybe some TVs, too, or poor tone mapping at that, at least having the Panasonic then would give you better yeah. control with that feature to be able to well, set the max luminance of your particular yeah. display system and then have it do the tone mapping on the disc player and provide arguably a better picture for your 
for your, I'm thinking specifically for projectors, for sure. a regular TV. But even for older televisions that maybe aren't that bright, right? Because I know HDR Optimizer was set up so you could set it as low as like 500 nits. Um, True. And that's, you know, so you could actually do it. And once it does that, it, it runs the tone map that's, it takes the information from the HDR metadata in the program, it looks at the brightness that your television can achieve, and then, you know, looks at those things and comes out with something it thinks or, or the best option to display. I wonder if the ratings the crew or anyone is doing really good tone map quality testing or who, if anybody does that, because, okay, the TCL right. six series, that's going to give you at least a thousand nits, if not more of light output, uh, depending on if it's not too old, I imagine. Right. Uh, and it's going to have quantum dot color. So it's got the color points. So that player should be good for that. I'm just curious to see like a difference in, in, in tone mapping quality, right. because at least with Samsung and LG, they're both dealing with machine trained tone mapping systems nowadays where they've analyzed these different scenes. And so when right. it, it detects a certain kind of scene, it'll optimize the picture in a certain way. So even if you're dealing with something that's not say Dolby vision, where it's actually defined in terms of the, that per frame or per scene luminance levels, the TV is still going to take that content and then process it in some way to make it look uh, at least whatever the company thought at the time to be the best it can. I wouldn't spend the extra money with the TCL, to be honest with you, unless you just want to do an experiment. And that's something, actually, I'm going to dig around the internet a little bit and see if anybody's actually done any uh, straight-up comparisons with that and to see what somebody like Chris Heinen did with the, his comparison as well. Is he actually saying that uh, with certain TVs, they were seeing a significant benefit as well, particularly anything relatively modern? I'm assuming that TCL 6 series isn't that old. Chris is pretty enthusiastic about it he said it delivered more vivid colors that were washed out in other players yep it did that without screwing up the colors in other areas i, I think the reviewer on sound and vision was pretty enthusiastic about it it would be really interesting to actually look at the values that are coming out versus the values or you'd have to you'd actually have to have like a panasonic and a non-panasonic player because right you know what conversation for another day <laughs> that and in particular i could see this totally being the case though with something like yeah. a 4k projector especially one that's yeah. a couple years old that didn't have any or it had very basic tone mapping built into it yeah and rather than have to go into your projectors menu like it is the case with certain older 4k hdr projectors where you have to select a tone mapping right. level that looks appropriate for the content you're looking at Having a Panasonic then where it could do all of that just automatically to the known output capability of the display it's connected to would definitely be right. an advantage. But I'm, I'm just curious to know if yeah. for mo more modern TVs, though, that are doing so much processing anyway in terms of HDR playback, if it really would make that much of a difference, if at all. Anyway, be a curious fun uh, to figure out and something to look into. The entry-level Panasonic Blu-ray player with that... Uh... HDR optimizer is the UB420K. It's about $250, depending on where you're shopping, to get Dolby Vision from Panasonic and also the HDR optimizer. Uh, and you know, I, my understanding is if you have a Dolby Vision television, you shouldn't need, or if you have a Dolby Vision content for Dolby Vision television, you shouldn't need the HDR optimizer so much. But that said, so many things out there are not Dolby Vision. You know, you're looking at $425 for the DP UB820K, which is the, the entry, the lowest, least expensive Panasonic with 
Dolby Vision included. They also have a flagship, the UB9000P1K, which uh, runs about $1,000. Uh, that's got HDR10+, Dolby Vision, THX certification, HDR optimizer, XLR outputs, and some tone mapping options just for projectors. And uh, I, my understanding is also is that it's just heavier built. It's more robust and stylish. Oh, yeah. Um, I, for oh, premium, yeah. that would be the, my first choice if I were just, you know putting together a premium display system especially for uh projection i would just yeah. say that would be a, an ideal choice and yes for anybody who's listening to avxl for the first time that's avxl.com or search for avxl on your favorite podcatcher and staring at their screen in disbelief that we are talking or their speaker or staring at the wall while you're listening on a set of headphones in shock that we still own Blu-ray players. It's just the best way to get your movie if you want all of the quality. Or if you're worried about it being able to be streamed. It's a thought. <laughs> we still like Blu-ray players. They deliver the highest quality. Oh my goodness, without a doubt. Um, although streaming has gotten so much better in the last few years. True that, but it's the the best of the streaming services I've looked at. Typically, I'm thinking yeah. specifically for Sony and what they offer built into their TVs. They're doing bit rates that are equivalent to a ultra uh, 4K Blu-ray disc, uh, sure. HDR. So it's like, you know what? And just having that, if you don't have the greatest internet connection or you can't buffer that in certain ways to, to right. achieve that kind of, you know, up to 100 megabit for video, uh, <laughs> look, yeah, just get the disc and be done with it. I still buy discs. I do it for audio and video when possible. And if it's something I truly know I'm going to enjoy over more than once or a few times, it's just the way to go. And if you buy the 4K ultra high def version of a movie, right. it'll typically include a Blu-ray version or even a DVD version maybe. So you can you know spread the love around if you need to on multiple displays or, or locations without having Spread to the love. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Sorry. <laughs> oh, my goodness. What are you watching? Obviously, you're watching the Super Bowl this afternoon. Heck, yeah. Doing that. I've also been enjoying the insanity that is uh, Call of Duty Warzone 2. And in particular, oh, wow. I, I mentioned a, f a few weeks ago, they're about to go into Season 2, I think, in another week. And so that'll be some new content and a resetting of certain statistics and things like that. But I love messing with the audio in that game. Uh, I currently am using the home theater preset, and then I was taking a look to see if uh, Dolby actually makes a virtualization technology that uh, you can add to Windows to see if that would make a, a perceivable improvement to my experience. So I spent the 15 bucks for the driver or whatever it is you're actually buying with that. Didn't really notice a damn thing, or it's kind of convoluted in terms of you, how you enable it and and what it's actually doing so i ended up just turning that off but then i went back into the sound settings within the interface of warzone and there is a cinema preset that's a quote-unquote above uh home theater and i will be honest with you that cinema preset would be made for an extremely quiet environment with an incredible sound system the dynamic range was so great on that that i found it was too much even with headphones on uh, I didn't want to have to turn up the volume loud enough to perceive the the the, the low detail or the the quiet parts, uh, and and so basically adding just that hint of compression in the home theater mode, which sounds still fantastic. Mm -hmm. It just made it way more listenable 
uh, at lower res, uh, lower volume levels, so I don't have to like blow my eardrums out to uh, to perceive those quiet footsteps when somebody's sneaking up behind me, effectively. So. <laughs> Goodness. Anyway, but it's cool to see games, though. Modern games, at least, have all these options in terms of, uh, at least in certain ways, at least Dolby Atmos and, of course, just good home theater and uh, cinema presets to choose from. In addition to all your, of course, bass-boosted, blasted versions of everything as well. <laughs> anyway, that's a fantastic headphone game. It shocks me how many people do not play with headphones. Uh, for games like that, especially yeah. competitive first-person shooters. Because in that game, there's proximity chat as well, and you can hear what's going on in certain people's rooms. And I'm just like, oh, you clearly didn't hear that person sneaking up behind you. And it's like, you're about to... <laughs> anyway, it's got good audio chops in that game, and I, I appreciate it. And it's a little fun when I have the time. First thought, really looking forward to Mandalorian Season 3, which is coming up, I guess, March 1st. And uh, uh, also, the family and I rewatched Rogue One uh last week and that just I, that i in some ways i think it's my favorite star wars movie after a new hope slowly working through slow horses on apple tv uh which is a really interesting uh really interesting experience i might have cried during wakanda forever 4k uhd blu-ray just came out on that and uh have you ever heard of uh leo or leo maraccioli uh frog leap studios on youtube I want to say I have, but it's not ringing any bells. He's like a Norwegian heavy metal guy, and he he did the I don't know how I found it, uh, but he did this insane cover of uh, Country Roads Take Me Home, uh, which is a song I know intimately from the original John Denver version when I was a child, and the somewhat more awesome Toots and the Maytals version, um, the reggae version from Toots and the Maytals, which is a personal and family favorite. Uh, but I was laughing because he does this insane sort of metal cover of Country, Take Me Home, Country Roads. And he does, uh, it's just, you know, uh, uh, the the cover of Madness's Our House also stood out. <laughs> you know, oh, look, there's a cover of the South Park theme. And these boots are made for walking. And, uh, you know, You'll either find it amusing or just be horrified at what I listen to. I'll just leave that there. Ah. <laughs> They're puppets and a rabbit costume in one. Actually, a rabbit costume in several. Actually, the rabbit costume is is kind of like Donnie Darko, and it's terrifying. But, you know, it works. So, just a thought. If you got a question for us, do us a favor. Email ask at avxl.com. If you're a patron, thank you. Seriously, thank you for being our patrons. We have not charged anybody for the last couple months because we haven't done uh, three or more episodes per month, but uh, I am endeavoring mightily to make sure we have three or four episodes in this month of February for this year and bridal joy of it. So go to patreon.com and contact us there. If you're a patron, or you can message us there. Or tweet at Robert Heron, at Patrick Norton, or at avxl. Uh, I may lose my blue check mark. It's hard to tell, but uh, it's probably still me, and I'll try to keep my face up on there. You know, uh, uh, I was me laughing too. about that. I may lose my check mark. Oh. Apparently, I'm corrupt, but that's just a whole nother level of weirdness. I thought I might care about that, but I really don't. It's not so much that I care about it, but it was nice to that it made it that much harder to imitate people. True. I, I've, I, we've both have had friends that have been imitated on social media accounts um, or former coworkers might be a more accurate description. I felt as if I had to go through a background check to get that blue check mark to begin with. And it, it, that, that'll well, be the only thing I might miss is just yeah. that, that level of verification. So anywho, 
I suppose I can always buy one. <laughs> <laughs> True. <laughs> I'm going to buy yours. <laughs> I wait with bated breath. Oh, my goodness. With that, ladies and gentlemen, I'm Patrick Norton. I am Robert Heron. We'll catch you next week on AVXL.